This is episode number 162. Canadian runner Sasha Gaulish makes choices, not sacrifices. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. And I think back to the mental preparation, the mental training, along with the successes that we play out in our head, I think we need to play out the outcomes of what if it doesn't go my way and figuring out how to then be okay with it. Not to say to make the sadness go away, but so that you can sit with those thoughts when they happen and work through them and be really sad that what you worked for didn't happen so that you can then find the lessons that you needed to learn so you can move on and have success the next time. Welcome, welcome, and thanks for hanging out with us today. I hope things are going well and you're starting to feel festive for the holidays. We got some snow here in the last week, and that's actually set the mood for me. So I'm pretty excited. I am going down to New Mexico and Arizona once again for the holidays to do some biking and some hiking and hanging out with family. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. And that's going to be our last big trip for a while. My due date for our baby is March 7th, so we won't be doing any far away trips until, uh, wow, I don't know, until after the baby is ready to travel. Thanks again for listening to the show and being a part of my community. And thank you for the reviews that you guys have been leaving on Apple Podcasts. Your subscription and reviews ensure that this podcast gets disseminated and that more people get to hear our awesome guests and the great messages that come along with them. So if you're enjoying the show and you want to help out, make sure you leave a review, share the show with your friends, or take a screenshot and share on social media. And if you'd like to contribute to my work in a bigger way, you can go on patreon.com slash the show or find the PayPal donate button in the show notes or on sonyalooney.com slash podcasts if you'd like to make a donation to help us cover the costs of keeping the two shows a week going and contributing to bigger and brighter things. And big thanks to those of you who are doing that already. Super, super, super appreciate it. So let's talk about today's guest, Canadian runner Sasha Gaulish. And she's really awesome. And we've known each other through the internets for a while. She is a well-known, decorated Canadian competitive runner. She has her PhD in civil engineering, which she just finished, and is passionate about girls in sports. She's a bronze medalist in the 1500 meter at the 2015 Pan American Games, despite her shoe falling off. And we do talk about that in this episode. She's won a variety of shorter and longer distance races and raced on the Canadian national team for the IAFF World Marathon Championships. I love Sasha's four tenets of living and training. They are always play, make choices, not sacrifices, work hard, and eat real food, feed the machine. She's done such a great job nailing down what her core values are and then living her entire life by them, and not just as an athlete, but in her career as an engineer as well. In this episode, we talk about her transition from alpine ski racing to short distance racing to marathon running, her drive for achievement in all areas of her life, including getting her PhD and juggling being a professional runner while pursuing her PhD and why she preferred to do it that way, starting her running career at age 30. And again, it's never too late to pick up a sport that you're interested in. You never know where it will take you. How to look at food and body image in a healthy way. And we've been hearing so much about marathon runners, especially with all the, the Nike stuff going down. So this was a relevant topic how she dealt with her recent marathon that didn't go the way that she wanted to, her career as a runner and some fun stories around that, making the best of the Doha World Championships and empowering girls through the Fast and Female Organization. Lots of good stuff in there. And I also want to thank our podcast sponsor, Osea Malibu, for supporting our show and helping us keep the lights on and keep things rolling forward. I only work with brands that I believe in and that I personally use. So I was really stoked about this relationship that was formed with Osea Malibu. Actually, earlier this year, this is their second time sponsoring the show. So that's pretty awesome. Osea puts your health and the health of our planet first with potent skin and body care solutions that are pure, safe and effective. And that's uh, really important to me. The human health and the health of the environment. Those are words to live by. That's how I live my life. 
Osea Malibu's defining elements of wellness are ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. And I think that we can all attest to that in our lives, nature, the earth being outside, natural things. And their entire line is built on those four pillars and pulls from botanical sources around the world to create products that are truly effective. And I can just say from firsthand experience, I've said this before, it just really makes your skin feel fresh. A lot of skincare products are greasy or they feel heavy and you can feel them. And when you put this one on, it just feels really good. Another cool thing, which I hope to do someday, is if you're in the LA area, stop by Osea Venice Skincare Studio because they can bring out your inner glow. They can give you a one-on-one consultation and show you all of their awesome products. If you want to spoil yourself for the holidays, use my name, Sonia Looney, at checkout for $10 off a $50 purchase. And you can also get body care products, things like scrubs or facial masks, so that you can pamper yourself at home, feel good, and do good by the earth in the process. All right, so let's get into today's episode with Sasha Gaulish. Welcome to the podcast. So excited you're here. Oh, so excited to be chatting with you. We've been online friends for quite some time, and it's been really awesome to watch just your journey. And yeah, you're an inspiring person. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Well, and it's been fun to follow you on social media and attempt to do what you do on a bike as a runner, which has resulted in some really hilarious things happening. Well, the funny thing is, you might not know this, but I was actually a runner before I was a cyclist. Ah, cool. I did not know that. Now, not like you, but I was like 18 and 19. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to do 10Ks. I'm going to do these things. And then I kept getting hurt because I didn't know how to train properly at all. <laughs> and yeah, then I started riding a bike. Well, it's challenging, right? Like running is one of these funny things where like people pick it up and they say, oh, I'm just going to do it. But it's still a skill. And then you end up running with some really poor form and you get injured and things happen. So it makes me sad because so many people quit running. But I mean, you found cycling. So all good. And I'm interested in getting back into some running as well, which is like I've been toying with the idea for quite some time. And I just kind of miss that like start line feeling where you're like, oh, my gosh, like, what am I doing here? Or am I even going to be able to finish this thing? And I, I kind of crave that. And it's been hard to find that in bike racing. And I, I'm not retiring from bike racing in any stretch. So anyone listening, don't worry, I'm, I'm not quitting bike racing. <laughs> but yeah, I think about just adding in like maybe one or two running events just for fun. Oh, I think it's awesome. And I but I would encourage you to find a coach to make sure you run properly. <laughs> yes, please. So speaking of getting into running, I've done quite a bit of research on you and you've done a lot of different sports before you really went all in on running. So like, what is your background for everyone here? So I'm kind of giggling. So like when I was a child, my heart was set on being an alpine ski racer. And if you then go and look at any photos of me, somebody should have said all along, you are not meant to be an alpine ski racer. Like I'm, I am totally built like a middle distance runner. And then, you know, when I train for marathons, I kind of like lean out and look like a marathoner. But I, you know, I kind of like the Roger Federer story. If you've read, uh, you've read range, but you know, I played a host of sports. I actually played tennis as a kid. I golfed, I water skied, I alpine skied, kind of anything in any sport I could get my hands on. I did. And I was definitely one of those, like we called ourselves back there, like neighborhood rats. And we played like tag and bike tag and like any sport you could dream up of. And, you know, I just think I had this like really multifaceted background that sort of opened the doors, but like really was like always pushing that aerobic engine in my body. Yeah. And I also read that you are an alpine ski coach. So you must have been doing that for quite some time. Yeah. So I ski raced mostly almost all the way through high school. And I have a sister who's almost three years younger than me. So three years by school years. And I have two parents who are physicians. And so my sister was a much more talented ski racer than I was. And it was kind of like, hey, can you kind of quit ski racing and become a ski coach? And I was like, sure, they pay me to do this. And you're encouraging me to take Fridays off to ski. Who would say no to that? And so in my back in, we had grade 13 in Ontario. In my grade 13 OAC year, I became a ski coach. And I absolutely fell in love with coaching and being around athletes. And I ski coached all the way through university. And I did two degrees. So that's seven years of undergrad. And it was a great way to support myself and a great way just to be around kids and, and ski in Ontario for you know, those that don't know Ontario, we have the smallest hills in Canada and they are the most expensive to ski at. And so 
if you don't have kids, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to join these clubs when instead you can go ski with kids and have fun and have them pay you. And because it's sort of one of those sports, you can have them pay you quite a bit of money as a person in university. And then I just kept ski coaching when I eventually moved into my engineering practice because I just I was in love with spending time with the kids on the hill. And I mean, running's great, but there really is this sensation in skiing that I can find where you're just flying free. And so I was just kind of chased that every weekend. That's awesome. And you mentioned you, you did two degrees. What, what were those degrees in? <laughs> So I really wish, you know, I had seen my guidance counselor in high school because I did every math and science and I went into commerce because I thought that's what you do. And quite clearly in second year university, I just really wasn't enjoying the classes necessarily and kind of figured out what engineering was all about. And so decided like commerce isn't for me. I'm going to finish up a three-year economic arts degree at the University of Toronto and I'm going to apply to to engineering. And I ended up at uh, the University of Western Ontario in civil engineering. That's so funny. You and I kind of did the flip flop, like everyone in my family are engineers and they're like, yeah, be an engineer. So I was like, well, I like math and science, so I'll be an engineer. And then I did my master's and then I was like, I don't like engineering, so I'll go back to school for pre-med and take all those courses. (laughs) Yeah. Did you end up as a physician in medicine? No, I didn't. Um, My bike racing started going too well. So I started, Ah. I actually did a career change and started doing marketing. So and oh, that, so you ended up where I started. Perfect. Yeah, there you go. I know. It's, it's really funny. And you just, didn't you just finish your PhD? I did. So this sort of gives you some insight into my character. So when I, I was working at the Ministry of Transportation, so a public sector job and ski coaching, and I was bored there. So I decided that I would do a master's of engineering part time to sort of like fill my time. <laughs> and then when I got back into running when I was 33, also sort of sets the stage for my character. I had quit my job to run again and I was bored. So I decided to pick up a PhD. (laughs) Yeah. You know, (laughs) kind of a high energy person, (laughs) high energy person. And the, you know, and people are often like, Oh, you must not sleep a lot. But like, you know, I sleep 10 hours every night at least. So people are listening. They're like, how is she doing all this? And (laughs) like, where's this drive coming from? Like, you know, it's hard. Like life takes a lot of energy. So where do you get yours? It's interesting. I think I derive a lot of my energy from the activities that I participate in. So I really loved the research all throughout my PhD. Sure, there were low moments, but, you know, look at the trajectory. Like most of the time I was motivated and really enthusiastic about what was going on. And then, you know, on the professional running side, I work with a great team. And so I was always so excited to get to practice and see my friends. And so all of this hard work was going on, but it was just filled with so much joy that it, in a sense, not that it took away from like the hard work, but maybe it just made it so much more satisfactory that it's just like this, you know, exponential energy that grows out of it. Exponential. Yes. Um, (laughs) The non-math nerds maybe wouldn't have gotten that, but uh, I just had to put it, but the running thing, like I read that you didn't start running seriously until your thirties, which people would never guess when they've seen your incredible accomplishments, not only in one discipline of running, but across multiple disciplines from like really short stuff up to marathon, which is super hard to do. So where did this come from? Because most of the people you're racing against have been like running their entire lives. Well, and it's not that I wasn't training. I mean, when I wasn't training seriously, but you know, I've always really loved going for long runs and, you know, going for run after work and using running as my think time. And after my undergraduate engineering degree, I actually got introduced to road cycling. And so, you know, I, I was so obsessed with road cycling that I'd, you know, ride my bike to work all the time and go for these big rides. So, you know, I was on a, always kind of pushing the envelope with my endurance, just not specificity, but, you know, there's still something to be gained from that. And then I guess it was when I was 32, I had this awesome job, worked for this awesome company, but I was working with long consulting hours. And my friends were like, hello, we miss you. Can we hang out? I was like, well, I'm not very good at like the social thing. Like, let's go for a drink. Like, I'm just not good at it. But let's go for a run or let's go to practice. I'm like, game on. This sounds awesome. And so I I went back to practice to hang out with my friends. And, you know, I was not at the front of the group working out at the start. I was, you know, not only out the back of the group, not able to finish workouts, but I was just having so much fun that that I came back. And you're still seeing improvements. And you know, as I continued to go to practice, I went from back of the pack to mid pack to front of the pack to, okay, there's something magical going on here right now. 
And like, what made you decide to start racing with that? Because it's one thing to go out with your friends and, and suffer. It's a whole other thing to show up to a start line and then continue to show up. I hadn't thought about this and it's very timely. So Gabriella Stafford, who just set the Canadian record in the 1500 and finished sixth at world championships last year, sorry, yesterday, her. So she was going to run a 3000 and go after the Canadian junior record. And Kate Van Buskirk, another really accomplished track and field athlete from Toronto was going to be her pace bunny. And Gabriella asked me to run behind her so that it gave her, she didn't have an excuse to slow down because if she slowed down, she'd hit me. And I took 30 seconds off a 3000 PR and was like, Hey, this is fun. Like I want to do this again and again and again. And it was helping a teammate out that brought me back to the start line. That's so cool. And your success, I mean, your hard work was a lifetime worth of hard work building your aerobic engine, as you said, but you started seeing results really quickly was it actually hard to see those results quickly? Because whenever you start getting them, then you start expecting them. And there's a, a weird relationship there with yeah expectations and what you're capable of. So there wasn't. And I think it's because I was so busy at work. So between trying to get the training and then and then actually trying to get my work done and then being exhausted and sleeping, there actually wasn't a lot of time for thinking. And so maybe it was a blessing in disguise because I'm definitely plagued by some of those thoughts now as I step up to start lines. But I was just so busy and I guess it was just maybe I was naive or it was so fresh. I don't know that there were no thoughts about like what comes next. Am I going to get faster? It was like, where can I race next and how much fun can I have? Yeah, that's super cool. Like, I feel like it's easy to let go of the fun sometimes and take it too seriously. So whenever that's in the forefront of your mind, when you line up on the start line, I think that that can be so powerful. Well, and you know, it took a lot for me to actually quit my job to commit to this full time. And, you know, I have it written down somewhere. You know, I told myself that if it ever stopped being fun, that I was going to quit. And maybe because that was the foundation for coming back, that it's it's always been part of what the process has been about. And, you know, I think a lot of people and maybe that's a generalization, but I think there's this misconception that when you're out there in a grueling workout or working hard with people, that it's not fun and that it's not supposed to be fun. And I think that that sometimes is what people have in their heads. And instead, working really hard with a group of people who's equally as invested in what they're doing can be a lot of fun and should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I've noticed that, especially in actually in women's running and in women's cycling, that everyone's bringing each other up right now to get better and better instead of being like overly competitive. Like, you, you know, of course, you want to like beat everybody when you're out there, but you can also simultaneously make everybody else better. And that's super cool. Well, especially if you recognize that you yourself are going to get better as other everybody else gets better, right? Like, you know, this We show up to a start line and it's like, I want to kill everybody and destroy everybody. But, you know, the second you cross the finish line, we're all friends again. And it's back to working together so that, you know, we're all better athletes. Yeah. Yeah. What, what you're saying kind of reminds me of some of the tenets of training you have on your website. I thought that that was pretty cool. So can you talk about those and also how you came up with them? Because a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know what my core values are, or I don't know how to define my purpose or my why. And it can be really intimidating to do that. So how did you come up with yours and what are they? I have not memorized them, but I the ones that are really important to me, I'll speak to. So when I did my advanced coaching diploma, we walked through creating a vision statement. And so through that, you create values for yourself or for, sorry, an organization, a mission statement, vision statements, you know, like your typical corporate strategic planning meeting. And I was like, well, why don't I do this for myself? And at first I was like, these need to be separate. I am terrible way to frame it, but real life and, and sport. And now I've realized that those two things go together. And so, you know, over time these have evolved. And so these things are not just for my athletic life, but for my entire life. And, you know, it was, you know, a privilege to be able to do my advanced coaching diploma and actually be exposed to this in a sense to do this. But, you know, there's lots of books that out there now that help do this. You know, Kara Goucher just wrote one, which walks you through this kind of process. And so, you know, I, I had values. I have mission statements that I update every year and vision statements. It's like goal setting, right, on things I want to do. But at the crux of it, there had to be something at the foundation. And so, you know, 
I am obsessed with sleeping and I, you know, I call it my superpower and we don't totally understand what happens in our consciousness when we sleep, but we do know that's where we recover and where we get better. And if I haven't slept, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do all of the tasks that I've set out to do every day. And so, you know, making sure that I get that really good sleep is really important to me. And so having those really good sleep habits and, you know, creating those environments to have good sleep habits, you know, like flying over four world championships, like it's, it's a long flight. And I remember arriving in Barcelona, which was a holding camp and my roommate was awesome. And, but I came prepared, like I had earplugs and over the head earphones, noise canceling headphones, sorry. And I had an eye mask and, you know, I fell asleep at nine 15 that night with all of the lights on, with all of that stuff like on or in, and I slept until 11 AM the next day. And it's cause I had this environment where I could get the sleep that I needed. And my roommate was like, I think I could have driven a Zamboni through here and you wouldn't have woken up, which might've been true. I was pretty tired at that time. But then that set me up for that whole training week while I was there so that I could have success. And so the other thing, you know, this really rung true as it related to women's sport was, was to nourish yourself. You know, when I was in high school, it was really hard to see friends of mine, you know, as we go through puberty as women, you know, Lauren Fleshman says it best. We get a shitstorm of hormones and who knows what your body is going to do, right? Some people stay thin. Some people, you know, grow boobs and a butt and hips. Like that's normal. Like we're made to get ready for childbearing years. And so you sort of lose control of what's happening with your body. And then people try, particularly young women, and we are learning more about young men doing it and reds, but young women try and manipulate how they look through food. And, you know, this whole idea of looking at food as nourishing yourself and as fuel and not as a way to manipulate how you look, it really changes the dynamic. And, you know, instead of just looking at the macro and micronutrients, just looking at it as, as a holistic way to stay, you know, really healthy. So, you know, I remember going to a cross country meet recently in Boca Raton. And so it was the Pan Am championships and we get there. And so I'm allergic to legumes. And so like chickpeas and all those things I can't eat. So effectively I had this like salad in front of me, but thankfully I had beef jerky because I always travel with beef jerky for extra hit of red meat and iron. So I added that to my salad and then there was no salad dress or anything and no fats, but they had this like rich velvety chocolate cake. And I was like, well, I'll just take a slice of this. Cause like, then I'll get my fat content that I need for a day. And fine, it's not the you know, healthiest choice, but given the circumstances, that's what I needed to fuel myself. And, you know, finally the next day, thankfully we got, you know, a meal with some meat that I was able to eat. But, you know, I think we just need to change how we approach food and particularly how women approach food and just have a healthier relationship by seeing it as fuel and not necessarily as a food. And so I've gone back to work this fall. And so being organized is really important. So, you know, if you've got, you know, a 9am meeting or a 9am lecture, and then some time, like, yeah, I stick workouts in there and everything else. But you know, I also have to do sort of like much more meal planning than I did before, and just making sure that I have everything that I need. So, you know, Sundays, I sit down and I organize my calendar for the week, like where training is going to fit in and where I have meetings where I maybe need to, you know, say no to something just because I need to get you know, the really important priorities in my life. And then just making sure I have like all of the snacks to nourish myself, which takes a fair amount of organization, not just sort of on the weekend, but on a daily basis as I pack up for my day. Yeah, I can't remember my other tenants. <laughs> Can you poke me yeah. for some reminders? Organize, sleep, work hard. And I mean, yeah. you've, already, you've already talked about that kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, the work hard really comes from my parents. So like, my parents are both physicians, but my mom is just this like rock star. I mean, she's now the vice dean of the medical school at U of T. She was the first female president of a Canadian anesthesia society. And like worldwide, no woman had ever been the president of one of those societies. She's still a practicing physician. And she said, you know, my parents really opened our eyes to say, like, if you want something in life, you can have it, but you just have to work so hard to get it. And, you know, you really have to set what your priorities are. And you know, that I guess leads into make choices, not sacrifices and just seeing things in a positive way. And my parents, you know, really helping us to like, they gave me lots of rope to hang myself and oh my gosh, did I ever hang myself at times. But, 
you know, I had this awesome safety net that then brought me back in. And it was like, okay, you made a mistake. You're still working hard. How can we support you to help you get back on track with where you need to be? Like, what are you going to do to continue on this working hard journey? And what do you need from us? And also saying to us, like, what are the things that you can maybe give up? And, you know, this gets back to making choices, not sacrifices in the sense that, you know, when I came back to running, so many people said, oh my gosh, you've sacrificed your career. And I just was like, no, I haven't. I made the choice to pursue something else. And fine, it doesn't come with a shiny paycheck, like with engineering, but it has so many other things that it offers. And I'm so proud to have been able to make this choice. And that framing, I think it's really important. You know, the research tells us that like the negative bias is the thing that's going to be predominant. And so it actually takes a lot of work to make sure that you let the positivity bias be the predominant feature in your life. And I think if you can kind of shift your framing and say, okay, I'm making my choice to do this and not see it as a sacrifice, I think it already sets the stage for seeing something in a much more positive light. Yeah. And I also love that, number one, it makes you take responsibility for your choices. And number two, it takes away the victim mindset because, yeah, like it, whenever you're going for something big, you there are choices that you have to make. There's an opportunity cost for choosing what you want to prioritize. And that means that certain things are going to not get as much attention at that time. But I think whenever things are going well, it's easy to say, yeah, like I'm excited about my choice. But when things aren't going well, Sometimes people start focusing on all the things they had to give up and what they missed out on. So just keeping that, per- and that's natural. So like keeping that perspective that you chose to do that and that having that choice is such a gift is just super powerful. And I, I loved reading that one on your website. Oh, thanks. You know, I think it's interesting, right? Like you just sort of alluded to it. Like our brains crave that victim story and, you know, us being able to tell ourselves a different story, you know, that's. When you're having those negative moments, say, what's the story I'm telling myself? Okay, embrace those negative moments and those emotions and figure out how you can make them positive so that you can tell your brain that different story. Yeah. And I also saw online that you're qualified as an Olympic level coach and you specialize in mental training for entry level athletes. What are some of the other things that you include in that mental training? Well, so the backstory on that. So I did my Olympic coaching. I actually... When I did those levels, I really focused on entry-level athletes in the mental aspects for this reason. So, so many athletes get to the elite level and, you know, they just don't have the mental game. And I don't blame them. You know, we expect them once they've hit the elite level to have all of the skills and we've done no training, you know, no mental training with them from the beginning. And mental training doesn't have to be something massive, right? So, my project for this, you know, the advanced coaching diploma, what was known as the level four was, I called it my best day. And so I was coaching these six and seven year olds at Alpine skiing. And I, you know, framed this exercise, like I have my best day when, and it was talking to them about eating healthy dinners, eating breakfast, setting an alarm, getting there on time, drying out their stuff, getting their equipment ready. And, you know, those skills that we teach them at a young age, right? those skills carry forward with them. But, you know, we're really missing those aspects still at the entry level. And so these athletes are moving forward without having had this foundation of skills. They have this foundation of the physical skills, but not the mental skills. And, you know, I think that's where people get overwhelmed. And it was so interesting to see how the team that I was working with that winter changed when we did that exercise. And it was also the cutest thing I think I've ever done. So, you know, some kid was like, my favorite breakfast is waffles and strawberries. And waffles was spelled W-A-F-L because <laughs> that's how it sounds. Yeah. And I think that just having those open-ended questions, too, are really powerful. Because when you, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like whenever there's in math or engineering or science, whenever there's like an answer, you're trying to get the answer And it's really easy to get stuck into getting the answer. And when it comes to your mind, most of the time there isn't the one answer. There's a lot of answers and it requires you to really like think about what it is that's the right answer for you in that moment. So like, how have you, because you have a PhD in engineering, so you spent a lot of time in the analytical side of things, like to keep your creative side open, what have you done to keep those open-ended questions freeing and, and not limiting? 
I guess it's just sort of having those conversations with yourself while you're out doing something, but also keeping it simple, right? You know, I just sort of was reflecting on what I just said to you. And, you know, like, I think I often think about like, what sets me up to have my best day? And, you know, sometimes it's sitting down and just looking at a writing prompt and writing for as long as I can for that writing prompt. And some days it's going out to a trail and exploring that trail with, you know, no sense of my watch and no sense of time, just enjoying the beauty that nature has to offer. And sometimes that's, oh my gosh, I want to learn. I'm curious about this. I want to go down this rabbit hole and learn about that. And, you know, asking yourself the simple questions and the open-ended questions and giving yourself the space to play in them. I think that that's a good question for the mornings because we always hear, oh, you should journal or you should meditate or you should do all these things. And the times I've sat down to journal, if I don't have like a specific prompt, I'm like, well, what am I supposed to say? <sighs> so I think that that actually is a really great way to start the day, like to ask yourself what is going to set me up for my best day or even ask it the night before because it'll again remind you of like what's important to you, but also what makes you happy and what makes you unhappy. Yeah. And, you know, there's certain things in our lives we don't get to control, right? And certain things that are going to bring us unhappiness. And, you know, that's part of being a resilient person and dealing with that kind of adversity. But when you're prepared for it, I just think it's so much easier to manage. Yeah. And speaking of resilience, we were chatting about this a little bit earlier, but like, there are going to be disappointments along the way, like period, like it doesn't matter what sport you're in, what your career is, like you're going to be disappointed along the way. And it's freaking hard when that happens. But it's also important to give yourself the space to process that and to let it go because like you and I, we both are passionate about a positive mindset and reframing things. But sometimes you just can't talk yourself out of how you feel, especially if you feel like depressed about it. And yeah, I just think it's important to talk about how sometimes we just need time. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're a negative person, but you just need time to let those things go. So like, how have you created that space for yourself through some of the difficult things that you've experienced? The best piece of advice I got, and I, it was when I didn't finish the Berlin Marathon, was to treat it like a death and to, to grieve the process. And so you really then can sit with the emotions that hurt and tease through them and work through why they're hurting and not necessarily why it happened, but why you're hurting. And I think it's really important to separate those two, right? The the why you're hurting and the why this happened. You may mm. never know why something happened, but you can almost always figure out why you're hurting. And to sit with those feelings, to not brush them off, to not embrace them and then just say, okay, go away. But to really sit with them and say, okay, I'm here for you and I'm listening. And I will sit with you while we go through this. And to really sort of listen to what your heart wants to talk to you about as opposed to trying to shut it off. I like that. And I want to talk more like chronologically about your racing because you said that you took time off of work, but then were you still working on your PhD at the same time or was did you like take time off your PhD as well? No, I never took time off my PhD. So in 2014, when I left my job, when I walked into my boss's office and said, I'm quitting. And he said, good, because I was going to fire you because you have to go do this. And I then started crying. <laughs> I was at home that fall training and I was bored out of my mind. I just, you know, running, middle distance running is a little bit different, right? It's not a team sport. You know, you don't have these eight hour days. Like you have practices and moments and stuff, but you do then have a lot of time and fine. I love reading, but there's only so many books you can read. So in, I guess, October, I managed to convince the University of Toronto to open up a spot for me to start a PhD in January, and then started on January 6th or something when the term started again. So whenever your boss said I was going to fire you because you need to go do this, like, did you have like a sponsorship opportunity? Like, what was the this? So that summer, I was training with the University of Toronto, and I was working with a coach named Ross Restuccia. And Ross after a couple of my races were like, so we booked you a plane ticket to Europe and you're going to race for two and a half weeks. And I was like, so I have a full-time engineering job. <laughs> and the people I was working for were like, yeah, that's cool. Like, can you just finish up this road safety audit that you're doing? So I basically had to do two weeks of work and one week of work. And then I headed over to Europe to race. And I had, I think that after that, like the third or fourth fastest time in the 1500 off, you know, really not real training. And 
being completely exhausted all the time while training. And the guy I was working for, this guy, Ben Powell, like we were texting all the time and keeping in contact. And I think he knew that I wanted to then pursue this. And he also, you know, I called my mom from Europe actually. And like back then you didn't turn your phone on. It was like $3 a minute. Yeah. And I called my mom because <laughs> my mom was like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, okay. And my mom was like, you need to quit your job. And, you know, I've just, you know, spoken about how hard my mom works. And I was like, quit my job. I was like, excuse me. I was like, whom am I speaking with? I don't, I don't know this woman on the other end of the phone. And, you know, I was like, look, like this is an opportunity in your life and this window will close. You know, you can come back to your career at any time. And I was like, thanks mom. I really appreciate this. I will think about it on the flight home, which of course I then got on the plane and watched four Disney movies or something and didn't <laughs> think about it. Came home, went back to work for a couple days and just, you know, I was kind of like ruminating with the thought and I was like, you know what? I really want to do this. And you know, I'm quite fortunate, right? Like I'm dating this awesome guy and I have a really supportive family and I had a bit of like savings and I was like, you know what? Okay. I'm going to take this leap of faith. I have no sponsorship, but I don't care. I can sponsor myself. I can do this. I'm going to quit my job and, and run full time. And he basically was like, you're going to quit your job. I'm going to pay you when you need money and you can do small independent work for me, but you need to go do this. And it was just it was so incredible to have so many people supporting me in that decision. And I think that's what made it so much easier, right? It was, everybody was telling me that I had to do this. And it was just, my head told me I had to do it. And it was just me talking to my heart being like, okay, heart, let's try. Cause the worst that happens, I can go back to work. Wow. That's so cool that you had that kind of support around you, especially from your family. I'm always in awe of people who have that. Cause I didn't have that at all. And I'm like, wow, like that just would be the best thing ever to have your mom say that to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for her to say like, and you know, I'm really thankful that I didn't have to do this. She was like, listen, you get into financial trouble. Like I'm right there for you. And, you know, I recognize what a privilege it is to have the family that I have. You know, it's not everybody has this and I never take for granted how special this is. And I wish, like, I really wish that everybody could have what I have. And I just... I know it's not possible. And, you know, my parents are super awesome. And like, we have people over all the time who don't have family like this. And they often leave and they're like, okay, I'm coming back. And they just do because they know they're welcome. Yeah. And I also think that if someone can create that space for you, because like my husband definitely creates that space for me where he's like, like, I quit my job so I could pursue full time sponsorships, full time being a professional athlete. And it wasn't until I had him say, like, I believe in you and you need to do this. Like, you need to, like, stop, you know, for lack of a better term right now, you need to stop being half pregnant. <laughs> but <laughs> that's like, I hear that term in, like, Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast. Like, you can't, you, you have yeah. to be all in. And yeah, like, having that space, it allows you to just be more creative. It allows you to be your best self because you're not, like, stressed out about this other thing thinking like, well, I'm half in, I'm half out. And what should I do? Like when you're in, you're in, and then you, you can just do what you need to do. Well, and you know, like, as Ben said to me, he's like, you're not going to be a good employee for me right now, because you're always going to be wondering what if, and you know, it takes a really special person to be able to say that because that's the emotions that we're going through. And, you know, and your husband said like that, not half pregnant, like that's perfect way to frame it. And you know, it's really scary letting go to something that's so comforting and not everybody can do it. But having those people in your corner, I think that's what lets us take that leap of faith. Yeah. And then once you start taking these like calculated risks, it makes it easier to say, well, what else can I do and what else can I try? Right. Totally. So, OK, so you were doing 1500 meters, which for the people that aren't really like runners or don't know the metric as well, like that's almost a mile, right? Um, yeah, they call it the metric mile. The metric mile. Gotcha. And you went to the Pan Am Games to run that distance as well, didn't you? I did back in 2015 when it was here in Toronto. Yes. And I read a pretty awesome and funny story about how it went down. So I'll let you tell it. <laughs> so 2015 Pan Am Games come to Toronto and I desperately want to run at the track where I ran my first track race ever, which actually happened to be a 1500 meter race. So I make the team the 1500 women's is the last night of track. So it's like one of the like spectacle events. All my friends and family are in the stands. We line up. I've got my telltale sunglasses on because I love sunglasses, right? I'm like the only person in the race wearing sunglasses. Don't oh, care. Wait a second. Why don't people wear sunglasses? 
I don't know. I don't know. Like, are they afraid no it's going to fall off or? No, it's just like people don't do it. Whoa. I think sunglasses yeah, are like here. an advantage because then like people can't see how much you're suffering. Right? <laughs> yeah. I totally agree. Like, these are all the bike things that I brought to the track. <laughs> like, when it's windy, I'm in echelon form. <laughs> D- does drafting work like it does on the bike or like is it oh, the yeah. same? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Like, it works kind of the same. I mean, like, you definitely have to work harder as a runner, but you definitely conserve energy hiding behind someone. And even when there's no wind, like, I don't know. There's something about running behind someone that just makes it feel easier in my head. So like works for me. Okay. So back to Pan Am game. So we line up, gun goes off. And often in a 1500, what happens is, is everybody surges to try to get to the front and get in a good position. And then it slows down. And it's almost like, like a slinky or what's the musical instrument? A, not a xylophone. Anyways, accordion? An accordion. Thank you. I, <laughs> I'm making the moves in right now, just so everyone can picture that. <laughs> So this accordion motion happens, and when that happens, what ha- you can have people's feet catching, bodies catching, tripping happening. Unfortunately for me, what that meant was somebody stepped on the back of my shoe and popped it off partway, not the whole way. So in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, really? So this had happened to me almost exactly a year before I was racing over in Europe. Somebody stepped on the back of my shoe. It didn't come quite all the way off. And I finished that race not very well and with the biggest blister I've ever had on the bottom of my foot. And it was just horrifically painful. And I said to myself then, should this ever happen again, I'm stepping off the track. Now, in my head, I had never pictured that happening in a championship race. And so no part of me wanted to step off the track. And I was like, okay, brain, if we're committing to do this, then you have to pretend that your shoe is on and you have to ignore what's happening. And so that's pretty much what I did. And Championship racing is very different than like running for a time. So often people really slow down to get position, to try and kick for the win. And so with 600 meters to go, pace starts to pick up. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And I remember, I don't remember much from them, but I do remember with about 150 meters to go trying to kick where my shoe then tries to fall off even more. I was like, good grief, really now? Like now? (laughs) So it's just really hard and challenging to kick. And so Fine, I didn't have my best kick ever, but I still came across the line in third place and got a bronze medal in front of all of my friends and family. And it was just like, there's very funny pictures of me then removing my shoe. And I looked up in the stands and the whole medical team had their head in their hands. So through that week, I'd actually like the week before, yeah, the week before at a practice race, I actually rolled my ankle on the track and I had this like, kind of sprained ankle and they were like oh no we failed Sasha and I was like oh gosh sprained ankle was great like someone stepped on my shoe like just trying to run with one uh, one not on and you know everybody had we all had a good laugh about it and after you know so many people asked me like what if like what if your shoe hadn't fallen off do you think you could have won a medal or won the gold medal and I always respond with I've never thought of it that way I've always thought of it isn't it so amazing that I won a bronze medal with only half a shoe on And it's, you know, that's my story of who I really am and taking this what could have been a crappy moment and just being resilient in the moment and afterwards. And it's, you know, like I still get shivers thinking about that moment. Like it was just so magical. Yeah. And I mean, when your shoe's falling (laughs) off, like I'm sure that there's a thousand other thoughts that could be going through your head. And the race time for this is, is it like four minutes or around four minutes or so? Yeah. Yeah. Just, we were just over four minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you have all these things where you like, you need to be focused because the race is so short and yet you could be thinking like, oh, my shoe's falling off or this is over for me or, oh, why does this always happen at these races? Like there's all these things that you could have been thinking. So how did you stay focused? So first I laughed at myself. I was like, good grief again. And kind of had this moment of chuckle, but it was that that commitment when I said, okay, like if you're going to commit to this race, then you just have to pretend that your shoe is on like perfectly. And I guess dissociating myself with what was going on. And it was only really in the last 75 meters, it felt like someone had lit a lighter underneath my foot. I was like, this is absolutely on fire. And unfortunately, again, I got this horrific blister, but it just didn't matter at that point because like race is over. Seems like a shoe company could come up with something where like that might not happen in a race. Like I'm surprised that technology isn't there yet. 
Well, the problem is, is we race with these five millimeter spikes underneath our shoes. And so like, it's just this like sharp object that if it grips into somebody else's shoe, like it's going to either, you know, rip their shoe. And like, often you see people kind of in track races, like sometimes bleeding like their shins and it's these spikes having gone up somebody's shin. I've had it, I've had it happen. It's horribly painful. You don't notice it while racing. And then you finish and you're like, Ooh, that stings. Wow. Yeah. I don't know much about track racing. That, that sounds really painful. <laughs> it's not great. A friend of mine actually had part of her Achilles ruptured because of someone spike going through their Achilles. And like, I mean, I know this sounds really bad, but does anyone ever do that on purpose to somebody else to sabotage them? No. Cause there's just not enough of them in your shoes that you could really do that. Okay. Right. Like you've got four pins and like, you just, you can't really run that way. Like it's would be such an awkward motion that one, it would be so obvious what you were doing. And two, you're more likely to actually probably harm yourself than harm the other person. So how did you decide to switch to doing longer distance things? Cause I have seen you done like 10 K you've done like some really fast marathon times. So it's unusual, I think for people to like go from these like four minute efforts to like a two and a half hour effort. Well, I'm like ego moment here, not to, so I've also run a very fast 600 meter on the indoor track, which is like less than a minute and 30 seconds, like totally. Yeah. And I love that event. So in 2016, I missed the Olympics. So unfortunately that spring I got migraines and I got this repetitive cycle of migraines that just completely stopped me from training and racing. And someone needed to pull me out of this vicious cycle of trying to chase the Olympic standard because I basically had a headache for eight weeks. Like it was, it was miserable. And I, I needed to, in a sense, redeem myself and not for anybody else, but just for me to be like, Oh, can I still actually do this? And I went down to do this half marathon as like a training event as part of a cross country season down in Indianapolis. And I missed the Canadian record by 17 seconds. I had no idea what the Canadian record was and how close I was to it until well after the event. But it just opened my eyes to say like, oh, my mind meant to maybe run marathons and kind of played in the distances. And, you know, some people have said like, maybe that's been, you know, to the detriment that I haven't focused on this one specific event in track and field, you know, whether it be the 1500, the 5000, the 10,000 on the track, which ironically, I actually haven't run or the marathon. And I don't know, like, I just have so much fun doing them that I think if I lost the training of any of them, that I'd kind of lose some of the joy in it. So yeah, this like turning point in Indianapolis, when I ran that fast half marathon, kind of opened my eyes to, hey, maybe I want to do the marathon. Yeah. And like, from a mental perspective, you're out there so much longer, the pace is is a little bit slower. <laughs> but it's still really fast. It's a lot slower. Well, I don't know, though, because if you're doing <laughs> like, I don't think in terms of like, Canadians are per kilometer minutes per kilometer, because I yeah. One of my like big dreams is to run a sub three hour marathon. And I was like calculating the minute per mile. And that would be like compared to a pro that would still be a really slow time. So I was looking at what the pro times where I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is <laughs> really fast per mile. This is insane. It is. But so, you know, when you compare the mile pace and the metric mile, so the 1500 or even like a mile pace that I've ran, you know, my half marathon mile pace is 50 seconds slower. I mean, it just feels so different. <laughs> but like you have to keep doing that, especially in a marathon for like a couple hours. Yeah, for 26 of those lovely miles. Yes. So I have now started three marathons. I've only finished two. I'm not counting world championships sort of like in the bucket of marathons I've run given the, the conditions. And we could talk about that. But, you know, whatever, something happened in Berlin where like, Basically, my body was not conditioned to run on roads for that long. So note to self, learn this from Alex Hutchison too. When you're training for a marathon, make sure you train on the surface that you're going to race on. So that summer, I spent most of my time training on dirt roads as opposed to pavement. And I really paid the price. Like I did pay the price for it. I went to the hospital instead of finishing the marathon in Berlin. But, you know, like you're, you're out there for a long time and you have dark moments and good moments and, you know, like if you're going to run a marathon, my advice is go pick somewhere with the biggest crowd you can possibly find. Because when you're having those dark moments, they're going to get you through. Yeah, but there's also a point where you need to quit. <laughs> and, and I want to talk about that because, yeah, you just went to Doha. It was Doha, right? <laughs> yeah. And you and you talked yeah. about this experience. And it's like at your level, like people aren't. And I mean, I'm not saying that people that aren't at your level aren't as resilient, but like 
there's just times where your body is just shut down and you kind of need to drop out. There's other times where people quit because they're like, oh, I'm not running the time I wanted or like, it's just not my day today. I just don't feel like doing this. And then they just drop out. Like those are two completely different situations. So yeah, like how did this whole thing go down in Doha? Okay, so first, we all should remember that the first person that ever ran a marathon back in Greece, he died, right? He died. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) Right? We forget that piece of the history, right? So the marathon is a different beast. Like, it's a big event. So Doha is in Qatar, and I apologize if I've said that wrong, but that's how the commentators have been saying it for the last week. And Qatar is pretty close to the equator, but it's basically a desert. And so... You know, the the conditions aren't ripe for running a marathon, you know. I I got some data back from the event. And so we started the marathon at midnight so we didn't have to run in the sun. But it was still 33 degrees Celsius, which I think works out to be 94 degrees Fahrenheit. And the heat index was 45.8 degrees. Wow. Which is 119 or 120, right? Like, note to self, note to all of you. If you're going to run a marathon and it's that temperature, do yourself a favor and just don't start. Just don't. And running so, running is even hotter than cycling, like because you don't have the same kind of wind that you would have on the bike. There's no wind. And like 20 minutes into the race, the slight offshore breeze that we had died. So there was no wind that night either. So I line up to do the World Championships Marathon, which is in Doha, Qatar, and, you know, totally adverse conditions. And at 16K... I was like, I'm hot, but like, whatever, it's hot outside. At 18K, I was like, my arms are dry. Why are my arms dry? I should be sweating. Why are my arms dry? I was like, oh my gosh, I've stopped sweating. And somewhere around 20K, I was like, I have goosebumps and my arms are starting to get chills. You do not get goosebumps and chills in that kind of heat and humidity unless something's wrong. And it was my body quite clearly telling me, you need to stop. And you know, not everybody knows the symptoms of like what's happening when heat stress and heat stroke are coming. And, you know, I credit that to my sports science background from coaching and just like my thirst for knowledge. But, you know, I think it gets back to that idea of listening to what your body is really saying to you. And, you know, when I stopped, my hands were completely dry. Like they were just so dry because obviously something in my body needed that water and it was trying to conserve it, which was great. Thanks for saving me body, you know, and and listening to those alarm bells. And I think, you know, you know, you talked about, oh, I'm not hitting the paces and I'm going to drop out. You know, it's learning to differentiate between the signals that are coming through your body, right? Like, what are the clinical health things that I need to be aware of? Like, where is this acute pain that I might have? You know, like metatarsal fractures often show up like that, where it's like all of a sudden you have this, you know, inordinate pain in your foot. And then separating from, I feel some discomfort from the activity that I've chosen to do. So, you know, whatever aerobic activity you choose to do, you get to a point where it's really challenging and it's hard and we say it hurts, but really it's uncomfortable. And yeah, we can get ourselves to a place of uncomfort and discomfort that is painful, but it's not that kind of health pain. And I think no matter what level athlete you are, you really need to be able to listen to those signs so that you can say, okay, it's time to push and go and okay, it's time to drop out and not because I'm not good enough, but because my body just can't do this today. And that's okay. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, when it's your health, like you want to be able to keep running. Like the reason why you're there is because you love running and you can actually push yourself to a point where like you might not be able to run for like quite some time if you push past where your body's supposed to be. So I hilariously had two goals for world championships was one, get to the finish line was my primary goal. And two, don't die. Don't die wasn't actually based on the, I was actually more afraid of like getting overwhelmed by the heat and fainting and hitting my head on the ground. That's sort of how I envisioned don't die in my head. And I actually think in retrospect, looking at the conditions that I was subjected to, those goals needed to be flipped. You know, the the conditions, you know, particularly for the women's marathon in Doha, the men had it a little bit easier. They were just so adverse that the likeliness of me finishing was so low that those goals needed to be flipped. And, you know, I'm not saying that that should be, you know, don't die should not be people's goals for most race. Get to the finish line is a really great goal to have, along with some other like progress related goals 
that you can work towards. And then, you know, really working through the emotions before of not finishing, I think is so important. You know, Michael Phelps talked about playing out all those different things in the Olympics. And when he lost his goggles, he was able to go through the emotions and finish that race. And I think back to the mental preparation, the mental training, I think along with the successes that we play out in our head, I think we need to play out the outcomes of what if it doesn't go my way and figuring out how to then be okay with it. Not to say to make the sadness go away, but so that you can sit with those thoughts when they happen and work through them and be really sad that what you worked for didn't happen and to actually be really sad about what happened so you can sit with it so that you can then find the lessons that you needed to learn and so you can move on and have success the next time. I think that's awesome advice. And I'm really stoked that you shared that because I'm sure it's not easy to like talk about it. Um, so I want to change, I want to change gears to wrap it up, but I want to talk about fast and female. Can you tell people about that? Yeah, it's this incredible organization dedicated to empowering young women through sport. And I'm actually hosting an event this Friday. So when my devastation in Doha happened, this event, like going back to the emails and getting excited about this, actually fast and female totally helped pull me out of that. And can you go into more detail about what it is, like specifically what you guys do in case people want to be involved in it? Yeah, so there's there's a bunch of ways to be involved. But essentially, what it comes down to is we get together and we organize events for girls across North America. And we bring together to interact with the girls, like ideally national team athletes to share their story about what they've been doing in sport to make sport seem cool. So we know that at the age of 13, young women drop out of sport at six times the rate of boys. And there's a variety of reasons that this happens. But, you know, we know that when women see and young girls see themselves in mentors and in role models out there doing the thing that they love, we know that they will then want to mirror and echo and chase after those goals. And so you know, Fast and Female has been growing this amazing group of ambassadors and volunteers to put together these events to show young women that like you can have it all. And it's really, really cool to be an athlete and also to show the the girls that, you know, even if you don't want to compete at sport at the highest level, that, you know, it opens doors to so many things that you might not have known that it might open that door to a career for you. It opens doors to friends that you might not have met. Otherwise, it opens the doors to all these communities and connections that are really unique and you know, we don't just talk about sport in the traditional sense of like biking and running like we do, but, you know, dance. And, you know, we're we're also starting to think about other performance in terms of like music and other things and just really bringing together a community of girls. Because when girls are together as a community, like they thrive. And so Fast and Female is just trying to create as many events as possible. And so, you know, if you're a female athlete and you want to sign up as an ambassador, you can head over to fastandfemale.com and apply either through the US or the Canada application. There's lots of ways to donate. There's lots of ways to host events, anything from a power hour, which is a one hour curriculum that we provide you to a three hour champ chat, which again, there's different curriculum and activities that people do all the way through a summit. And the summit's actually a summit happening in Calgary at the end of this month, which I so wish I had a private jet to get to. (laughs) Yeah, I I think uh, Keegan Randall was part of that too. And I yeah, I, I'm excited to spend more time checking that out myself. I hope you're sign up as an ambassador if you aren't one already. I'm not one. So now I got to. <laughs> I, I will send you the information. You don't have to go find it. And I can send you the link if you want to put it in the show notes. So both, yes, sure. Keegan Randall and Chandra Crawford, the Canadian Nordic skier, they co-founded this amazing organization because they just, they saw how many girls were leaving sport and they wanted to make a difference. And they are. That's so awesome. Well, where can people find you if they want to connect with you and follow your journey of all your amazing adventures and also your newly doctoral adventures, (laughs) newly appointed doctoral adventures? (laughs) Well, my thesis has not yet been posted um, at the University of Toronto. It doesn't get posted until after November, which is my official convocation. But more exciting, because who really wants to read a 250-page dissertation? Um, <laughs> on social media, I'm S. Gaulish Run, so S-G-O-L-L-I-S-H-R-U-N-S. And it's, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I try and post there almost daily just to try to inspire others to get into sport or into engineering and math. And, 
you know, also as a way of connection, because when I'm having a bad day, oh my gosh, am I thankful for people's comments. Totally. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really awesome to get to chat with you and yeah, hear all of your awesome stories. This was so much fun. I'm so glad we got to chat. It's always super fun to get in touch with people who I know through the internet and then I get to have an hour long conversation, getting to know them a lot better. And Sasha is one of those people. I'm hoping that one day we get to go running together, although I'm a little bit intimidated, but I think it'll still be fun nonetheless. I'm also stoked about the fast and female program that she has or that she's a part of. We actually had one of the founders of this organization, Keegan Randall, who was a cross country skier an American who won the gold medal and then had breast cancer immediately after. And we've had her on the show as well. So check out that episode. But Fast and Female is an awesome organization. I'm hoping to be doing more with them in the future. So check that out. Make sure you connect with Sasha on Instagram and check out her website. If something resonated with you, make sure you reach out to her. She loves hearing from people. I'm so glad that you guys are here. Thanks so much for listening to this show. Thank you for your support. Thank you to Osea Malibu for their support as well. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.